everybody, and welcome to Ghost Stories of Canada. My name is Zach, and I'll be your host this summer as we delve into folklore from coast to coast to coast. This is the summer 2019 podcast of Discover the Past Ghostly Walks based out of Victoria, British Columbia. My goal is to collect and relay the best ghost stories I can find from each province and territory. This means I'll be searching through books, web pages, and videos, as well as reaching out to other tour companies across the country to gather stories. You can expect a new episode to be released every Monday and Thursday starting July 1st and ending mid-August. Welcome to Episode 9, Saskatchewan. In summer of 2017, I was fortunate enough to travel with my brother by train from Vancouver all the way to, well, not quite Halifax. We got off in Springhill Junction, the station being nothing more than a little patch of dirt in the middle of some bushes. Our grandparents lived nearby, and that was the closest stop. If you don't know where Spring Hill, Nova Scotia is, I don't blame you. It's not a big town. It was the location of three separate mining disasters and the birthplace of Anne Murray. They prefer to be known for the latter. Anyway, when people ask me what my favorite province to have passed through was on the trip, they are always floored to hear my response. Saskatchewan. Isn't Saskatchewan just supposed to be this flat expanse of farmland? The old trope of watching your dog run away for a week? What I discovered was rolling fields of bright yellow and green contrasting with the most gorgeous blue sky I have ever set eyes upon. It was the most vibrant and beautiful landscape of the entire trip, and although we passed through the province in one day, I could have spent a much longer time out in that land. Thinking back to that environment, though, I have a very positive memory of it because I was seeing it through a very positive experience. For the people in this episode's stories, I imagine the landscape takes on a much more sinister atmosphere. The rolling fields stretching as far as the eye can see do not incite wonder and curiosity for them, but instead might seem like land void of hope and joy, fields barren of protection. It can be a harsh landscape in the winter, and when the sun goes down it gets very dark. We're here today to talk about that aspect of Saskatchewan, not the colorful picture I witnessed while passing through. Welcome to the haunted side of the prairies. For most Canadians in the days of the Great War, parting from their loved ones was exceptionally tough. Either you would leave your dear ones behind you, or you would be left behind by someone you loved dearly. In either case, it would be impossible to know if you were ever to see them again. Of course, communication could be kept up through the postal service, but it was a far cry from the electronic messaging systems we have today. 
It would often be weeks, even months, before you would hear back from your cherished correspondent. If you received no reply, was it because the letter was lost? Was it because they hadn't had time to reply yet? Had your letter been lost en route to them? Or, the worst of all, were they no longer alive to send it? For most people, this was the grim reality in which they lived. For Elizabeth of Regina, she was sadly apart from her husband and missed him dearly, but communication was a little bit easier between she and him. Winifred Barton was the one who recorded this story, being so close a player in it while it happened. She was a 14-year-old girl who had recently got a job in a restaurant in Regina in 1917. Elizabeth the cook was in her 40s, and in addition to being an excellent cook, she was a kind soul who valued her co-workers just as much as her work. During downtime, she would often chat with her friends on shift about all sorts of things, but invariably her co-workers would want to hear how her husband was doing. He was fighting over in Europe at the time, and letters between them were few and far between. Despite this, she would give regular and frequent updates on what he was doing. How was this possible? Elizabeth explained that falling asleep at night she would dream of meeting her husband. They would sit and talk, or go for long walks around a lovely lake. He would tell her about the events unfolding over in Europe, and his plans for the coming days. Some of his friends would even pass messages through him for Elizabeth to relate to their loved ones back in Regina. It was hard to be apart from each other, but at least they had these moments together. As months went by, Winifred settled into a routine at her new job at this restaurant with Elizabeth. She enjoyed her work, and she enjoyed talking with the cook about her dream conversations with her husband. It was all very exciting. One day, Winifred burst into the kitchen with a tray full of dishes and found Elizabeth in shock, one arm thrust out to the table beside her to steady herself and staring wide-eyed into the space in front of her. Winifred dropped the tray and rushed over to Elizabeth's side to ask what was wrong. Elizabeth spoke, somewhat distantly, as Winifred helped her into her chair. It turned out Elizabeth had been in the middle of making some mashed potatoes when she heard her husband's voice cut sharply into the room around her. I've had it, Liz, he was saying, pain tinging the tone of his voice. I'm a goner. The message was repeated twice more, as Elizabeth slowly came to realize what this must mean. After that incident, Elizabeth was no longer her cheery self at work. There were no more reports of conversations with her husband. Elizabeth claimed they had ceased altogether and had not had a single one since she had heard his voice in the kitchen. It wasn't until a month later that she received the official letter confirming what Elizabeth had known this whole time. Her husband had been killed while fighting on the exact day she heard his voice. Dark Hall was founded in 1911 for Regina College, and it's haunted by its namesake, Francis Dark. 
The whole university grounds have a history with death, having at least twenty of them on campus over its long existence. Many of these were associated with typhoid, which swept through the city a decade before medicine had found a way to counter it. At least one death was from when it housed the initial flying training school for British Commonwealth air training. The young airmen were having one of their possibly too frequent parties, and one of the guys fell off the tower to an instant death. Despite these many violent ends, the ghost that is most associated with the university's dark hall was not connected with typhoid or air training, but with his love of music. Not to be confused with composer Harold Dark, whose communion service in F is rather lovely, by the way, Francis Dark, or Frank as some called him, was a cattle buyer and landowner who ended up raking in the cash. It was he who donated well over $100,000 to the building of the university's new concert hall, which they named after him thanks to his generous contribution. He adored music and attended many concerts there, but the last event which would find Francis Dark inside the hall that bore his name would end up being his funeral. He died in 1940, and the service was indeed held in Dark Hall. Francis lay in state there for a while, too, before his placement in the mausoleum in Regina Cemetery, three kilometers away. So Frank loved music, and the concert hall was named after him. Of all the places to haunt, why not there? Some concert goers have found themselves sitting next to an elderly man who appears to be very keen on the performance, even dressing up for the show in his vintage, custom-made suit and tie. At the end of the show, they'll stand up to applaud, of course, but notice that the elderly man is not standing up with them. He seemed to have been really enjoying the music. Why isn't he giving the standing ovation? The concert-goer will look down to the now-empty seat beside them. A fellow who worked at Dark Hall often took a path to the exit after work that brought him past the plaque commemorating Francis Dark. The worker would notice how, whenever he passed through the area, the air around him became very cold. This bothered him, though he couldn't quite put his finger on why, so after a few days of this he began to inspect the area. There was a solid ceiling above him with no vents or airways. There were no open windows or doors in the vicinity. The air wouldn't get cold on the other side of the hall or before he reached the plaque. It was only ever right when he was in front of it. After three weeks of this strange pattern, the worker decided to stop in the cold spot and call out, Good night, Frank. The air suddenly became room temperature again. The worker has since learned to bid the dead philanthropist good night every evening before he reaches the plaque. If you ever get the chance, it would be worth your while to catch a concert at Dark Hall. I myself have never been, but I know a few people who study music at that university and who would be worth the price of admission by themselves. There is, of course, the added bonus of perhaps enjoying music by a live person while being next to a dead one, rather than the other way around. Pretty cool. Not very frightening, but still rather dark. might have noticed that those last two stories took place in the province's capital. I'm afraid that's it for urban stories today, though. 
We could do more about places like Saskatoon or especially Prince Albert, but you're going to find urban ghost stories no matter which province you visit in Canada. I'd like to zoom in on some of the stories that make Saskatchewan unique. For our first attempt at this, I'd like to look at two different buildings that have been repurposed in very different ways. Lake Lenore is a quiet little community not far north of Humboldt. It's very small, a few roads with a co-op, a restaurant, a few stores, exactly what you'd expect to find in a settlement along the Prairie Railway. The population, as of 2016, was just under 300 people, so there aren't a lot of big things there. The old hospital, in fact, was about the size of a regular home, and looked rather like one too, which is why it was so easy for it to become a private residence. There was a family that moved into the hospital-turned-home that immediately started experiencing strange things, occurrences you might expect to happen in a building that once housed the sick and dying. The first clue the parents had that their home housed more than just their family was one night once the children were in bed. The couple was walking around the ground floor, turning off the lights and getting ready to head up to bed. The wife walked past the stairs and saw a young girl at the top. It was dark, but of course, despite the lack of clear visibility, who else would it be but their young daughter? Hello, sweetie, what are you doing still awake? The mother called up. The girl said nothing, then suddenly disappeared. The mother ran upstairs to an empty hallway. Inside her daughter's bedroom, her daughter was fast asleep. Sometime later, they were hosting the husband's mother for a week-long visit. The grandmother was sitting on the front porch playing solitaire when she heard someone whisper right behind her, Hi, Grandma! This startled her, and she turned around, but proved to be entirely alone on the porch with no one nearby. Who had whispered to her she couldn't imagine. All her grandkids called her Nanny anyway, not Grandma. Another curious incident happened while the whole family was out. A neighbor drove past the house and noticed a light on in the attic. Knowing everyone in the family was supposed to be gone for the day, the neighbor was concerned and called the father to let him know what she had seen from the road. The family came home that night, and the father ascended to the attic and checked the light. The light was in the off position, so he flicked it up. Nothing happened. The light had burnt out long ago, so he unscrewed it and went back downstairs. A few days later, the family noticed the attic light was on as they pulled into the driveway. The husband was confused. He hadn't gotten around to replacing the light yet. Had his wife? She denied even knowing of the incident. The father went up to the attic once again, but found it dark by the time he arrived. Indeed, there was no light bulb in the socket. Things started to escalate very quickly. The dad and daughter were at home one evening watching TV downstairs when they heard a big crash coming from the staircase landing. At first, they thought it was the teenage son who had come home after drinking a bit too much with his friends, and they laughed a bit and called out at him. When no further sounds were heard, they figured something was wrong and went over to the stairs. No one was there, and the son had yet to come home. The two family members were now very unnerved. There was no other possible explanation. The crashing had sounded like somebody had fallen down the stairs. Perhaps I should have said things de-escalated very quickly. 
it began to seem like the house started to focus on the husband. More incidents would manifest around him than anyone else, even though it was the wife who had first seen the strange girl on the stairs. The husband was aiming to change the furnace filter one day, but the basement was dark with no working lights, so he asked his wife to stand at the top of the stairs with a big flashlight. As soon as he arrived at the base of the steps, he heard in the shadows to his right a deep, unearthly growling. This made him jump, and, frightened, he ran back up to the top of the stairs. He asked his wife if she had been trying to scare him by making growling sounds. Her face went white. She thought that he had been making those noises for the same reason. It was now very hard to ignore the oddities and strange events that took place around the family home, formerly hospital. The husband was lying in bed one evening as the rest of his family was in the living room watching TV. Looking up at the ceiling, he noticed the light fixture had begun swaying back and forth with no sign of stopping. He ran to get his family, and they all stared, transfixed, for about two minutes before it stopped sharply and didn't budge again. Among other small things that would happen around the house every week, the dog would bark at the wall for no reason or just stare into empty space, growling. Every so often, family members would feel something tugging at their blankets as they lay in bed, or hear footsteps up in the attic. Once the mother even heard someone whisper behind her, Do you remember me? as if she could forget. They couldn't decide if it was just the girl who was causing these things, or if there were multiple spirits within the house's walls. Overall, they had grown quite fond of the home itself, but the sprinkling of strange events had made them very uncomfortable. There didn't seem to be any semblance of an answer on the horizon, but in such a tiny community, they weren't about to go parading their problems down the street. All three hundred people would surely have flocked to the house and begged to be let inside, to witness something extraordinary in a rather ordinary little town. The family decided to keep it quiet. Besides, there was always the fear that these things weren't happening at all, that it was part of their imaginations, and that would be very hard for them if such an answer was confirmed. Secrets, like the old hospital house, no matter how well kept, do have a way of getting out eventually though it wasn't any family member that spilled the beans. The husband and wife were out at the pub one evening when a lady they did not recognize approached them. She asked them what they thought of their house. Not wanting to give away their secret, the couple simply responded that they liked it very much. The lady nodded and smiled. It's nice, isn't it? she asked. She told them that she had been the previous owner of the house and followed up with a question that sent chills down their spines. Still smiling, she looked them right in the eye and asked, Have you met the little girl yet? Many kids, and let's face it, adults too, wish they went to Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry from the Harry Potter book series. 
It's hard to find a child who does not get sucked into the fantasy world of magic, spells, potions, secrets, monsters, and yes, even ghosts that Hogwarts offers. And yet, while you won't find many schools around that offer classes on charms or transfiguration, there are still many people who can say they attended a school with ghosts. Schools can often be places that attract energy, what with hundreds of kids pouring in and out every day. For many children, school is a huge part of their life, and when a child dies suddenly, there are not usually many places their ghost might return to that were as meaningful to them as where they went to school. So yes, the schools you went to may very well have been haunted like Hogwarts, though maybe the ghosts weren't teaching any classes. The town of Gravelberg is home to around 1,100 people and is about a 75-minute drive southwest of Moose Jaw. Back in 1918, that's where you would have found workers completing the brand new convent for the Sisters of Jesus and Mary. They wanted to attract French settlers to Saskatchewan, and to do so opened up their convent to education for young French Catholics. The building immediately dwarfed all other rural schools in the province, and that was before it was expanded in 1927. Finally, in 1971, the school became part of the Saskatchewan public school system run by the government and no longer the Sisters of Jesus and Mary. While the presence of the former occupants may have departed, traces of them could still be found within its halls, and that didn't always comfort the new staff and student body taking up residence. New teachers to the Gravelberg Elementary School would be informed by the staff of the ghosts the institution held. They would be warned to vacate the school by sunset whenever possible, as that's when things started to get creepy. Of course, not every staff member could be out by dusk, especially during winter. During report card seasons, teachers would be staying late to collect and organize data, while at all times of the year the administration would often have to remain after hours and go through never-ending office duties. This is to say nothing of the custodians who would work late and come early often spending hours in the building by themselves in the darkness. Staff began to collect and share stories. They would hear doors open and close on their own. They would hear voices or footsteps coming from the fourth floor, which was closed for decades under lock and key. There were uneasy feelings of being watched, especially in one room which had seen a death back in the convent days. A young girl had run away from home to become a nun, never once telling any of her family where she was going. She contracted tuberculosis shortly after arriving and died in her room, which of course was later turned into a classroom. One teacher was bringing her kindergartners down to the school auditorium one morning, and as they were walking down the hall toward the entrance, they all watched a young boy run up to the auditorium doors, open it, and head inside. Some of the children were upset that someone else was using the auditorium. Don't worry, the teacher told them. It's our turn to use the auditorium, and that boy probably just didn't know that. We'll go inside and tell him it's not his turn yet, and we would like to use the auditorium. He'll go back to class, and we can go inside. Well, the teacher reached out for the door and gave a pull, but it didn't budge. The auditorium was locked, which she wasn't expecting. After all, they had all seen the boy run inside moments earlier. The teacher took out her key and unlocked the door. All the lights were off inside and when turning them on and inspecting the room, the place proved to be completely empty. No one knew where the boy could have gone. If it had been a student, that student was now hiding somewhere in the school, so the teacher phoned down to the office to let them know. 
That's when she learned that she was not the only person to have had this encounter. The boy had been seen many times before. There was no cause for alarm, and no missing or hiding students. Gravelberg residents were pleased to see a new elementary school open up recently with all the modern technologies and advantages that Saskatchewan schools could offer. It was a bittersweet transition, though, as while the old school was certainly haunted, the staff had come to love that building, forming many friendships inside its walls, which now housed cherished memories alongside its spirits. The one thing all the staff could agree they were happy with was that no one any longer feared staying late inside the new school, even well after the sun had gone down. Wherever you are listening to this podcast, firstly, I hope that you are well and that you are enjoying the stories we have for you today, but secondly, I would feel confident in wagering that you could very quickly tell me a little bit of spooky folklore from wherever you are from. Every corner of this country seems to play host to some kind of legend, whether that is of the Sasquatch in the forest, or the old haunted house down your street, or the bridge no one will cross on foot at night, yet everyone seems to have a story about. Local legends are part of what makes each little section of Canada special. The next two stories focus very much on that aspect of the supernatural. It's folklore that doesn't always present us with a concrete beginning and end, but which thrives on the middle, i.e. the experiences that people have while engaging in it. If you know one ghost story about Saskatchewan, it's probably this one. After all, for a town of less than 500 people, you know something is keeping its name on the map. Still haven't guessed what the story is about yet? The existence of the town's Phantom Light Diner might give you a clue. That's right, we're about a 30-minute drive south of Prince Albert, standing in the streets of St. Louis, Saskatchewan, to talk about its famous ghost light. The railway is all ripped up now, and no more trains pass through anymore, but that has only added to the intrigue of the famous Phantom Light. Local legend talks of some tragic railway accident, and we hear all kinds of explanations for the light's existence. Seeing as the railway records don't go back as far as the 1920s when the light first started appearing, there's no way to tell the exact nature of the accident, but it's quite possibly one of the stories that floats around. A disastrous derailing of a train, the lanterns looking for a little girl that was struck by a train, a murdered conductor who was killed defending his train from robbers, or, the most popular one, a railway worker who fell on the tracks and was decapitated by an oncoming engine. For however many stories behind the cause of the ghost light, there are another 500 people who have seen it, and many of those people have seen it multiple times. Some of the locals even say they've seen it upwards of 50 times, having grown up in the area. They claim there's not much else to do as a kid in St. Louis, after all. There have been several attempts to debunk it as well, and while many of them have come exceedingly close, no one has ever been able to account for all the small details. Many people say it's the diffraction of light from a nearby highway, 
although the light still appears even when the highway is closed off and the reports of sightings predate cars in the area. Another interesting explanation was that the railway had dumped large quantities of chemicals in the area, which react with the summer heat to produce light, which would make sense except that the light is seen just as often in the freezing cold of winter. No one seems to mind the attempts to discredit it that much. After all, those attempts bring just as much publicity to their small town as the sightings themselves do. If you are keen on checking it out, you're more than welcome to. The spot where it's seen is now on private property, so the town can't officially market it, but that doesn't stop them from being very welcoming to visitors searching for it. If you do end up out there, one of the most remarkable features of the St. Louis ghost light is that it's seen extremely frequently. In fact, it's rare to go out looking for it and not see it at least once or twice. Off down the old railway line, you'll see a mysterious white light rising up from the trees, wobbling in the air. Sometimes it will be tinged with red. It lingers in the air long enough for you to get a good look, and then it disappears. Standing there, looking down to the trees and the light pouring out from behind them, it certainly does give the impression of a train in the distance heading towards you. All it's missing is a whistle. If you're curious about the St. Louis ghost light but don't feel like venturing out to rural Saskatchewan, you can always search it up online. There are plenty of photos and videos out there for you to see that document the peculiar encounters. You'll be able to decide for yourself exactly what you think of the fabled phantom train. It turned out that when Roger Leclerc set off into the woods, no one ever saw him alive again. Claude Artaud wouldn't know it at the time, but the fate of his friend Roger would be tied to a string of unfortunate and deadly events that took place in 1939, from which Claude was lucky to escape himself. Stony Rapids, Saskatchewan, is what Wikipedia calls a northern hamlet, which is rather adorable. It's a community of about 243 people nowadays, 140 of whom speak Dene as their first language. One would find Stony Rapids on the eastern end of Lake Athabasca on the Fond du Lac River, about 82 kilometers south of the Northwest Territories. It was there, back in 1939, that Claude Artaud made a living as a skilled hunting guide in the region. He was a born outdoorsman and was quick with his gun and even quicker with his perception. Claude had been camping with his father and another fellow out on the Porcupine River in the fall of that year, and it was while all three men were out separately in the forest that Claude heard a horrible shriek-like wailing coming from less than a kilometer away, which chilled him to the bone. Immediately he readied his gun and ran towards where the sound had come from, and it didn't take long before he burst out of the bushes onto the riverbank. Claude discovered his father and their friend a short ways down the river, standing absolutely still and staring at something across the water. He called out to the two men, 
but when they didn't move he followed their gaze across the rushing river to where there was some sort of small vapor cloud before he could look any closer his father turned toward him don't come any closer he barked at claude turn away right now there was an overwhelming sense of urgency in his voice that made it impossible for claude to question his instructions Claude ducked back into the trees and sat down on a log, still clutching at his gun, his heart now pounding in his chest. Eventually, his father and their friend called out to him, and the three men walked back to camp in silence, not daring to speak of what they may have just encountered. There had been talk for years about the legend of the river wraith out somewhere along the porcupine. It was supposed to be the ghost of a murdered man, who had been done in by a fellow hunter along the river bank. Well, it wasn't a wraith in the way that we might think of nowadays, perhaps somewhat along the lines of the Nazgul from the Lord of the Rings, it was still a rather dangerous spirit. According to the people who lived in the area, anyone who set eyes upon it would die within a year. Three months after the frightening encounter at the Porcupine River, Claude Artaud's father, who had otherwise been in excellent health, suddenly took ill and died within a few days. To make matters worse, their friend who had been with them also passed away a few weeks later under very mysterious circumstances. Claude was now getting nervous. He had seen some kind of a vapor cloud across the river on that fateful day. Had that been enough to do him in? And was he next? He became inconsolably anxious, to the point where his friend, Roger Leclerc, decided something had to be done. He had tried convincing Claude that there was no such thing as the river wraith, and that the deaths of his father and their friend were just very unhappy coincidences. Claude was simply looking for details to confirm what he feared. Despite Roger's many attempts to explain this to Claude, it seemed to yield no positive result. Claude was dead set on the wraith theory. Roger, exasperated, told Claude that to prove there was no river wraith out there waiting to harm him, Roger would personally set off in search of debunking it. He packed a small overnight bag and set off alone into the woods, in the direction of the Porcupine River. Claude watched him vanish into the trees, wondering what news Roger would have for them when he came back to Stony Rapids. Unfortunately, Roger Leclerc never did make it back to town alive. His body was found several days later floating in the Porcupine River, there was no sign of any injury or foul play, and there was no water in his lungs to suggest he had drowned. No, the only detail of note concerning Roger's lifeless body was his face. It had been twisted and contorted in such an expression of fear unlike a human face anyone had ever seen. His eyes were wide open, and his mouth was stretched back in a permanent silent scream as if he had foreseen his own end. It was impossible to say exactly what happened to Roger Leclerc in his search for the river wraith, but it was quickly decided that whatever he had encountered out there all alone in the woods, it had frightened him to death. If you haven't noticed this already, 
I've been saving some of my favorite stories for the very last parts of the episode. Today is not an exception, as what follows this break is a real puzzling account, one which I will not try and answer for you on this podcast. I will leave it in your very capable hands to see what you can make of it. Until then, some important announcements. First, as always, I would like to acknowledge that these stories are not my own, nor are they collected by Discover the Past Walking Tours. The stories you heard today are from various websites and public forums, as well as from these following books. Canadian Ghost Stories by Barbara Smith, published in 2001 by Lone Pine Publishing and available online at Amazon and Chapters Indigo. True Canadian Ghost Stories by John Robert Colombo, published in 2003 by Prospero Books and available online at Amazon and abebooks.com. You should be able to find this podcast on discoverthepast.com under the Podcasts tab and on the home site of ghoststoriesofcanada.podbean.com. We're also on Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play Music, and Apple Podcasts. It would be incredibly kind and helpful of you to leave us a rating and review. The more reviews and the higher ratings we get, the more people we can reach with these stories. If you don't know what to say in the review, consider writing, I went to a haunted school like the one in Gravelberg, where I learned to write amazing podcast reviews like this one. Or something like that. The music for this podcast was written and recorded by yours truly. My name is Zach, and I am one of the guides for Discover the Past Ghostly Walks. Our next episode will be released on Thursday, August 1st, and will take us up to the Northwest Territories. If you enjoyed the Nunavut episode, this next one will certainly expand upon the mysteriousness of the Canadian North and will be one worth listening to. If you're interested in learning more about what we do, head on over to discoverthepast.com. All throughout the summer, we run historical walking tours every day at 10.30am and 2 o'clock p.m. Everything from Emily Carr Center tours to guided walks through Canada's oldest Chinatown. Our specialty tours, however, are in the evening. Every night of the week, we run our ghostly walks. We have eight different routes, a different route at 7.30pm for every night of the week, and then our classic route every night at 9.30pm. All our tours are 90 minutes long and start at 812 Wharf Street, outside the Visitor's Information Center. The only exception is our Daytime Chinatown History Walk, which starts at 1689 Government Street, outside the Starbucks. We would certainly love to see you out on one of our tours. Like many good ghost stories, this next one toys with your expectations a little bit and doesn't try and wrap everything up in a neat little package at the end. Life is like that. It won't always give us all the answers. There will always be loose ends to tie up. Perhaps that's part of what makes ghost stories so interesting. The lack of concrete endings serves as an invitation to engage on a personal level with it. That's when we find ourselves venturing out into the night, ready to take on whatever the world might have to throw at us. In July of 1983, four young guys loaded up their car and set off for a weekend camping trip. 
the three Pandya brothers and their friend Rob were just like any other young Saskatchewanians that summer with plans to hit up a campsite next to a lake and spend a few days out on the water and the nights relaxing by the fire. I can't say I blame them, as I'll be setting off on my own camping trip in three weeks myself. However, I hope that my trip is a little less... eventful than theirs. The quartet of campers departed Regina and arrived at Diefenbaker Lake around 4.30 on Friday afternoon. It had been a roughly two-hour drive from their homes, and so when they parked at the campground store and registration office, naturally the boys wanted to get out and stretch their legs. The three oldest immediately went into the store, passing by a large, black dog, which sat calmly in the parking lot as they went by. The youngest boy, Deppin, thought that his friends were sure taking their sweet time and elected to hop out and join them. As he opened the car door and swung his feet out, the large black dog in the parking lot went crazy, snarling and barking in a tremendous fashion, and it wouldn't stop until he had retreated back into the car and closed the door. Deppin decided it was best to stay in the car until his brothers came out again, at which point he told them what had happened. They had heard the noise from inside and had wondered what had set the dog off, but none of them could think of any reason why Deppin's actions had been cause for such a dramatic response. They shrugged it off. After all, they were now signed into the campsite and had all the supplies they needed. They pulled out of the parking lot and drove down the lane towards their site. The boys set up camp at an isolated spot right along the lake shore and had just enough time once the tent was up to inflate their dinghy and head out onto the lake. Frustratingly, the dinghy would not blow up and they couldn't figure out why. The pump was working fine, and there didn't seem to be any holes in the boat. After trying a few different ways of blowing it up, they drove it back to the store to get it inflated at the pump, which thankfully worked, and the dog, by the way, was gone, so Deppin was able to come out and help. By the time they got back to their site, however, the sun had set, and it had become too dark to go out in the water. They would have to wait until the next day. Instead, they made a quick dinner and sat around the fire until a little past midnight, telling jokes and ghost stories and the like until they were quite tired. The boys called it a night and crawled into the tent to go to sleep. Shortly after, around two o'clock in the morning, Rupin Pandya was woken up by the sound of rustling in the nearby bushes. His eyes flicked open as he lay there in the darkness, quietly listening to the sounds of the leaves and twigs snapping as something padded around near their sight. While he was trying to figure out what kind of animal might be out there, he began to hear a soft voice calling out in the night air. Help me, it was saying. Help me. Rupin lifted his head a little off his pillow to better hear the voice. Help me, it continued, still so softly that Rupin wasn't sure his mind wasn't playing tricks on him. He kicked Rob awake and whispered to him, telling him that something was out there. Rob was quite annoyed at this sudden awakening and rolled over telling Rupin to knock it off. Rupin insisted he wasn't making it up, something really was out there and it was calling for help. Back and forth they went, Rupin insisting and Rob resisting until they had woken up the other two. "'What's going on?' Deppin mumbled. "'Your brother's hearing ghosts,' Rob remarked, somewhat tersely. With that, all the boys went back to sleep, except for Rupin, of course. Rupin lay there quietly, straining his ears to try and catch any sign of the thing outside their tent, but ever since he woke Rob up, whatever had been out there had fallen silent.' 
After about thirty minutes, and just as Rupin was beginning to doze off again, he heard it. Help me, the voice was calling. It was much clearer now, sounding like a child's voice, and rather weak. The rustling started up again. Rupin couldn't lie there any longer. He unzipped the tent and grabbed a flashlight and the wood axe, just in case. It was time to investigate. Before he could step away from the tent, the voice became stronger. Help me, it called out, quite close this time. That was a little too much for Rupin Pandya, and he decided to wake the others. Before they could speak, he motioned for them to be quiet. Help me, the voice rang through their tent, and the other three shot straight up in their sleeping bags. They all heard it now. What could it be? A little kid in trouble? Someone playing a prank? The rustling grew ever closer, and the boys peered out of the tent. Their flashlight beam found movement at the base of the trees lining their sight. Deppin gasped. Out of the bushes stepped the big, black dog from the parking lot of the store. The voice suddenly stopped, and the dog lumbered off through the trees toward the water's edge. Back inside their tent, the boys found that none of them could get to sleep again. Their minds were buzzing with the strange events that had just unfolded, so as dawn approached, they packed up their sight and loaded up the car. They were leaving. Determined to get some kind of value out of the weekend trip, they drove to Saskatoon where they checked into a hotel room for the night. It was on Sunday morning that they were driving back home to Regina, listening to the radio, and that's where they heard some extremely unsettling news, which served to tie all the oddities of their trip together. The snarling black dog in the parking lot, the dinghy that they couldn't inflate and which they never took out on the water, and then the child's voice calling out with the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime. On Friday, the day they had arrived at the campsite, a man and his son had fallen out of their boat and drowned in Diefenbaker Lake, not far from where their tent had been set up. As if that wasn't a creepy enough coincidence for Rob and the Pandya brothers, it turns out that the only survivor of the boating accident had been a large, black dog, which had swum to shore.